Hi listener, this is Nina coming in at the top of the episode with a content note for you. So during our discussion of Journey to the River Sea, we discuss European colonialism in South America and some not very good representations of indigenous characters by Eva Ibbotson. The book itself uses the term Indian. Within the episode, we've chosen to go with native and indigenous We've got some resources in the show notes about representations of Indigenous people in children's literature, and we've got a couple of recommendations for Own Voices middle grade books, which we highly recommend you check out. That's it. Um, We hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even the, Even the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We've started off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. And this month we're reading around rivers in Brazil. Our picture book is Along the River by Vanina Starkov. But first, we're talking about Journey to the River Sea by Eva Ibbotson, and we're thrilled to be joined for that conversation by a very special guest. His work is featured on the podcast before, in episode two, with one of our absolute favourites, Pog, and again, last episode, another solid favourite, The Monsters of Rookhaven. But it is an absolute pleasure to have him on the podcast today to talk about one of his favourite kids' books. It's Porig Kenny. Hello, Porig. Thank you for having me. Great to be on. Would you like to tell us a bit about why you chose Journey to the River Sea? I think um, because it's just brilliant. I think it's fantastic. And also because I came really late to it and just before I started writing my own work. Mm. So it had a huge impact on me in that regard. What struck me about it in particular as a writer was the writing. The writing is just perfection. Yeah. I, I really think that it, it's, it stands up well against what some people might call uh, literary fiction or adult fiction. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's just perfect. The world it creates, the characters it creates. And again, it had a huge influence on me as a writer as well, because I remember reading and thinking, you know, if someone can write something of that quality and it's a children's Mm -hmm. book, then why not try and aspire to that myself? It's something to aspire to, you know, that that kind of level of artistic achievement, I think. Was this your um, your first introduction to Eva Ibbotson and Parag? Yeah, it was. because it's, it's my wife's copy and she bought it way back in the early noughties. And after that, we bought a couple of her other middle grade novels for our kids. So I was aware the book was around and I just hadn't picked it up and read it. And then the cover of this, has, of course, caught my eye. It is a children's book, but there's something adult about the cover. Yeah. Something kind of, is a touch of quality. It's got that popping blue butterfly on it as well, doesn't it? But I know what you mean. It, it it kind of feels like it could be the sort of book an adult would buy to take on holiday and sit by the pool with, right? Mm, Which I yeah. guess in terms of like picking that up as a kid is maybe quite exciting then because you're getting to read something that like yes, yeah. the grown-ups read. 
I read it when it came out. I think I had an Eva Ibbotson box set when I was 11. So it, it was very new when I read it. And the rest of them in the box set, probably like the ones you bought for your kids, are like silly ghost stories. Yeah. You know, they're like really grotesque and silly. And then this is a step above. I mean, she did she did children's books and then she did romances. Which I think you can tell a bit in this. There's a bit of the romance to it, isn't there? I mean, the only thing I have to compare it to is Beasts of Clawstone Castle. And this is um, like similar, but it's it's distinctly less crackers. This sort of does a similar thing and the the story kind of comes to a close and then there's a whole extra kind of Yeah, she does this thing with structure where you feel like you know the story she's telling. But then yeah. you get halfway through and that main story wraps up and you're like, oh, no, that wasn't the main thread. Yeah, yeah, You've yeah. missed the main thread. <laughs> yeah. The main thread's still going. So should we, should we jump in? So should we get a bit of a synopsis then? Okay, so Journey to the River Sea by Eva Ibbotson is the story of a little girl called Maya. It's set in 1910 and she's at a girls' school and she stays there every summer because her parents died and left her an endowment. So she's been an orphan at this school for a couple of years. And then she gets some really exciting news that she does have some surviving relatives in the world who would like to take her. And they're called the Carter family, and they live in the Amazon. And so she has to say goodbye to all her friends, uh, and she gets on a boat with a governess called Miss Minton, who's also been hired by the Carters, to look after their twin daughters and Maya. So they have this amazing journey on this steamship. They're out there for like weeks, I think it takes. And they meet this boy actor called Clovis. And we meet him when he's picking his spots in the mirror. He's really worried about not doing the little boy parts anymore because he's starting to look (laughs) like a grown man. And they strike up a firm friendship. And then they get to the Carter's house in the Amazon. And the Carters are like the worst expatiest British expats you can imagine. They're shipping in all their food from Britain, so it's really expensive and really dry and tinned. They don't let the kids go outside because they think that everything out there is dirty. They're colonialists, right? They've come to like exploit the rubber trade in the Amazon. Uh, nobody in Manaus likes them. And Maya is suddenly stuck with this family of awful people and Miss Minton, who is not awful. Two private detectives from the UK have come to look for this boy who is the son of Bernard Taverner, who was a famous naturalist who died recently. And apparently he had a son with a native woman and his grandfather wants a male heir. And so he's sent for Bernard Taverner's son. Clovis is going to play little Lord Fauntleroy at the big theatre in Manaus and Maya has promised to come and see him but the Carters foil that plan by telling her that they've got tickets but they've sold out so she can't come so she has to find her own way to come and support Clovis in his play and a mysterious indigenous boy appears to give her a lift and it's really weird like can he speak English can he not he boats her to the theatre and she gets there just in time to see Clovis Clovis's voice breaks on the cutest little boy line in the play where he's like going up to his grandfather and going, where he's supposed to go, well, I have to stop being your little boy. But he goes, well, I have to stop being your little boy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's terrible. And Clovis is disgraced. And then 
Maya's in trouble for coming to the theatre when she wasn't supposed to. And then Maya realises that the native boy who gave her a lift in his canoe is Bernard Tavener's son. And so we have three orphan children at the heart of this story. We have Maya and Clovis and Finn Tavener, who's hiding from the detectives. Mm. Is that all we need to know for now? Yeah, that feels like quite a full story arc, right? Yeah. But then there's like so much yeah. more after that. <laughs> yeah, we've only taken you up to the point where we meet the three main characters. How much plot she crams into stories is mm. is incredible, really. Yeah, she makes really good use of pacing, doesn't she? Yeah. It's paced so well. Like, I remember feeling like the journey to the Amazon takes ages. It's one chapter. Yeah, yeah. But we cover weeks and weeks of travel and it's one chapter and you still feel like... You've spent the time on the boat. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's strange the way she yeah, she can telescope time. And, and some, some episodes seem to be expanded. And really, there were only small little incidents. And she condensed in so much into the last two chapters, which is probably why, it, for me, especially the end of it, packs such a wallop, you know? It's just great. Um, shall we start with one of our regular segments, Matt? Matt likes to do a gender corner. All right. For the gender politics of a book. <laughs> We always chat a bit about gender representation in the book. It's quite an interesting one with this, I suppose, isn't it? Well, you have to make allowances for it being 1910, in that people are pigeonholed into very specific roles and Mm. aren't allowed very far out of them. But Finn and Clovis, we love them because they're characters in this book, but they're terrible boys. Mm. They're terrible. They are. (laughs) They're really entitled to Maya. They're really possessive over Maya, both of them. Finn's horrible to Clovis, basically because he cries. Yes. And, like, Finn can't even bear Maya to have another male friend. Maya makes friends with this nice Russian boy called Sergei. And, like, Finn's like, oh, what are you going to do? You're going to have him kneel at your feet. (laughs) I found, especially near the end of the book, I just couldn't tolerate Finn anymore. No. I mean, he was well written, but he was so... He was so entitled and he was so, oh, look, I'm great at everything, you know. I'm so self-sufficient and wonderful and fantastic. Yeah. And that began to grate on me for a bit. Yeah. I began to find veering towards Clovis a bit because at least Clovis is a bit... He's, he's more obviously flawed, I guess, yeah, Clovis yeah. is. Absolutely, yeah. I've got an excerpt here. Could I contextualise it for us? So it's toward the end of the book. I won't say what's happened, but Clovis has done Finn a massive favour. Yeah, this was where I turned against Clovis. yeah. You'll never know what you've done for me, he said as he reached the gates of the level crossing. If there's anything you want, Clovis grinned. Can I have Maya when she's grown up? Absolutely. His smile vanished in an instant. (laughs) No, he said. Oh, well, Maya would probably want to go off adventuring again one day, thought Clovis, and that wouldn't suit him. He'd settle for one of the Basher's banshees. Plenty of time to decide which one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's just, oh, Clovis, man. Oh, he's got to that moment, I was, I was fine with Clovis. I was like, I found him endearing, and then he said that. Uh, I, he felt entitled to Maya, and that was it. I was like, no, sorry. So we do love Maya. Can we all agree we love Maya? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 She's a proper, proper little adventurer. Yeah. 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 She's very into the outdoors. And the, and the Carters won't let her go outside because they insist that the Amazonian air is dirty. And so Miss Minton, who's my favourite character, oh, yes. comes up with this brilliant thing. She's like, let's pretend you have something called pulmonary spasms. I've just made it up. <laughs> just cough and yeah. splutter a lot. Yeah, and I'll say you need to go outside for fresh air. Because Maya says, oh, I've never heard of pulmonary spasms. She goes, oh, I should think not. I just made them up. <laughs> 
And Miss Minton being her governess, right? I don't know yes. if we mentioned in the synopsis. Yes, so Miss yeah. Minton has been hired by the Carters. The Carters have gone through a number of governesses in recent times to look after their awful, awful twins, mm. Beatrice and Gwendolyn. And it's so sad for Maya because the way that this new life is presented to Maya, her teacher at school you know, announces, and they've got twin girls, as if yeah. she had arranged the birth herself. Let's talk yeah. about the twins. The twins pretty directly influenced the the twins in your own your own book. Yeah, in Rockhaven. Yeah. Do you want to give us a give us a rundown of the bratty twins? The first time we meet them, Maya has all these expectations about them. They're they're yeah. wonderful. She's going to be their friend. They're going to have great fun together. And then one of them does she shake her hand? Shakes her hand and pinches her. Yeah, and the thing is, you don't actually know she's pinched her until afterwards. Mm. There's a weird reaction, and you go, what's what's going on there with Maya? And then a couple of sentences later, Maya looks at the palm of her hand and, and realises there's a mark there. And you've got to go, oh, yeah. that doesn't seem very nice, does she? But then Maya still wants to extend the benefit of the doubt, right? Yes. She's like, oh, she yes. must have had a bit of grit yeah. under her fingernail or something. She must yes. have not noticed. And it keeps coming up, doesn't it? Like, in a couple chapters' time, it would be like, Maya, by this point, had no doubt that Beatrice was deliberately <laughs> digging her nails into her. They're really awful. They're these, like, spoiled little girls. They're almost described as, like, little pink pigs. Yes. They're very pretty. They've got blonde hair and they wear, like, these matching white dresses that they're not allowed to get dirty and these ribbons in their hair and these round pink faces. And their mother has instilled in them this, like, British entitlement, mm. this sort of colonial British mindset about everything English is good and everything indigenous and Brazilian is bad. I've found a good bit about Gwendolyn and Beatrice. Shall I read it out? Sure. So they're they're doing some embroidery. Beatrice was embroidering a table mat with primroses. Gwendolyn's was covered in violets. Maya was given a square of linen and a skein of embroidery thread. What are you going to put on yours? asked Beatrice. I thought I'd like to do those big red lilies that grow everywhere here. Canna lilies, I think they're called? Beatrice made a face. Oh, you don't want to do them. They're native flowers and they're nasty. Mother says they're a breeding ground. Maya looked up, surprised. What are they a breeding ground for? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliantly read. Yeah, that was excellently read. A shout out while we're on it for the uh, uh, the audiobook I read. I've just found the, the narrator. It's uh, Penelope Rawlins. Yes, she did very well, didn't she? That was yeah. But your your twin voice there was was right up with hers. Nina, I praise. Torrent, what what's the book about for you? Because I know that can be such a tricky question, particularly with like Eva Ribbets and stuff, where she just kind of crams so much in. Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, the way most books like this, you can say this is about one thing, but there's so much going on. But there are things for me that I feel a certain bias towards. For example, Miss Minton as a character is is just phenomenal. She's a wonderful character. She has real heart. I mean, she doesn't show it explicitly or too obviously. Yeah, cause she's quite stubborn at first, right? Like she comes across as the strict, stern governess. Yeah, and that that's kind of played up a bit. But then she can be very funny and dry and she reads a lot and she knows a lot because she's read a lot. And she sacrificed things like uh, decent clothes just to buy books. That's hinted at as well. And so for me, she's a kind of she's a hero, but in a really quiet, 
uh, stubborn way, which I really, really liked. She's almost the protagonist in some ways, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's Maya's story, but there's so much of it once we get into the depths of the story that it really feels like Miss Minton's story in a lot of ways, right? And and that's the interesting thing I found as well. Uh, Ibbotson's such a great writer. She has this lovely balance. There's Maya's story, there's Miss Minton's story. Neither one kind of dominates the book. Yeah, she's very good at head hopping, yeah. isn't she? And she she's also really hops is. into the heads of the baddies as well sometimes for a bit. Yeah. Um, and then you're with them for a bit. She's very, very good at balancing these different points of view. And sometimes she'll suddenly switch point of view in the middle mm. of a, a paragraph. Yeah. And yeah. As a writer, I go, you can't do that. You can't do that. But she does it so deftly. Yeah. And it's like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. She is fantastic at breaking the rules, isn't she? Yeah. Because it's just yeah. the sheer confidence of it. And at just the right moment as well. She knows to how to, when to pick her moments, you know. Yeah, no, I noticed that because I, I mean, I listened to an audio book of this rather than uh, reading it. There's a couple of moments where it almost trips you up. You're like, oh, hang on, wait. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. Yeah, that worked. We're with this person now. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> Just dipping in there. It's in- interesting what you're saying as well about Miss Mint and Pura because when she's talking about wanting to learn and study and go to uni and I think there's just a line she says of generally when someone wants something enough, they get it. Yes, yeah, I remember that time, yeah. And it feels like that's a bit of a cornerstone that she's like, well, you know, I've kind of got no money and hardly any clothes, but... I've... What she has got is absolute integrity, though. Yes, yeah. Like, that's her main trait, I think, is that, like, she's grounded within her values and she stays there, even though it's seen her be poor mm. and not have much job security and not much respect, but like I'm beginning, to, I begin to figure out why I, I really like her. <laughs> I, feel, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel a certain kinship. <laughs> yeah, uh, like she went to night school, didn't she? Yeah. And took years to graduate, but she's so yes. proud of that. And she got a first. Yes. Yes. Well, obviously she did. She's brilliant, yeah, right? Yeah. But then it plays with it as well because when when we first get introduced to her, the reason she got fired for her old job is really bad. Yeah. It's like she basically just starts beating this child repeatedly <laughs> you're like oh god what a villain and then you find out why she was doing it and it was this lad who tried to push a puppy through a wire mesh fence yes it just flips it straight away and you're like yeah. not advocating hitting kids at all but for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> that's a line right <laughs> and she used a really big umbrella and i think that maya noticed there's a crack in the umbrella yes and that's why it doesn't <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you'd have to hit someone quite hard. Yeah. <laughs> but she plays on that scariness as well, I think. Yeah. Like, there's this interesting interplay between Miss Minton and the children who are really driving the plot is they don't tell her what they're up to most of the time. And quite often they think she would object mm. or she would try to stop them. But whenever we realise what Min- Miss Minton's actually up to. She's on their side, yeah. always. They don't always trust her to be on their side. Like, when Miss Minton is being performatively mean to Maya so that the twins won't pick on her further, she believes Miss Minton's really cross with her. Like, the mm. children are always ready to think that Miss Minton, you know, as an adult, isn't on their side, but she always is. But she's mm. very good at letting them get on with what they can manage by themselves while being the backup adult with a backup plan. Yeah. If it goes wrong, this is a, a thread throughout the book that is one of the most interesting bits for me. Was representation of acting and actors, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Um, we did uh, another book a few episodes ago called Wild, which goes quite heavily in on like an Amdram teacher <laughs> as a kind of parody. And I feel like there's a bit of a thing in Kidlit of like actors and Amdrams being a bit of an easy target. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such an interesting mix in this because we've got that whole bit on the ferry where Clovis is with the actors and they're doing their warm ups and they do like wretched to the left and wretched to the right, right. <laughs> doing their little faces and stuff. And it's this ridiculous character portrayal that's completely spot on. But then acting becomes so important in this. To the plot, like, yeah. 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 Like Clovis. And that Clovis an is good at it is really important. And that Maya's yes. kind of bad at it is also important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're talking about this great bit where like Clovis goes and looks out the window and Maya's like, What's he looking at? And he goes to look at the window again. Yes. And Maya's like, What's he doing? And then the third time she get follows him and he's like, Right, the third time people always come with you. You look out a window three times. People can't help themselves the third time. Yes. And then she uses that later. Yeah, in the book and then herself. she uses that to perfect. manipulate the twins later. Yeah. yeah. He's got he's got really good acting chops and even Finn admits this. Like Finn in the middle of his mm, Clovis should cut his hair and like toughen up and not cry so much is like but an actor's training isn't to be sniffed at. Yeah. He's got an amazing brain. Mm. Would you say you had a, a favourite character, Parag? Oh yeah. Clearly for me it's mismentioned. Um, right. I'm with you. <laughs> Who's yours, Matt? Tell us why yours is Miss Minton and I'll have a think. Well, why Miss Minton is mine and why she should be yours, Matt, <laughs> is because <laughs> I love her strength of character. Or, you know, the, And as Nina says, her integrity, her sheer sense of focus and her stubbornness. And she doesn't suffer fools gladly. And she's so dry and funny. And she puts a lot of store in reading and in knowledge you know, she's the kind of person who believes that knowledge and reading expands you as a person, it expands the world for you as well. And I think that's important. And I love lines like she said something to um, the uh, museum curator, Glastonbury, at one point. Glastonbury is bemoaning the fact that, oh, he can't go on an expedition next year because I'll be 58 and I'll be an old man. And what does she say to him? She says, um, that is the kind of remark I don't enjoy, said Miss Minton, cuttingly. <laughs> <laughs> Little things like that. Yeah. With the fewest amount of words, she will she will just give you her whole worldview and what she thinks of your failings as a character yes. and as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because she's been so poor for so long and she's had such a lack of security in terms of work, etc. You're kind of willing willing her to have some kind of success, mm-hmm. some kind of yeah. happiness, you know. And you're kind of going, go on, Minty, I want to see you on top of the world here. I just love her. There's a. Uh... A lot of story it feels like we don't get with Miss Minton, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. I'm not a big one for prequels, but I feel like I'd happily read a Miss Minton origin story. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. And and actually, to be honest, like uh, you say it should be mine, but I'm not allowed Miss Minton because we never have the same one, do we? Or I'm always no, too don't. stubborn to pick the same one. So, I mean, the, ob- the other obvious one is Maya, right? right? Yeah. Like... Maya's great. But again, I don't always like going for the obvious one. So you did mention there Mr. Glastonbury 
and I might go with him because I've just got a real <laughs> soft spot for Mr. Glastonbury. It's just this like bumbling museum owner. But again, there's a bit of backstory. They have to do a, like a staged break-in, right? Maya shows up to be like, oh, we need a break-in at your museum. And he's like, okay, well, that's where I keep the key and I'm going out for lunch for an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know... Shall we talk about the giant sloth, then, as we're with the museum now? Uh, yeah. So, one of the through lines in this book, one of the slighter ones, was the story about the giant sloth. So, in the, muse- the Museum of Natural History in Manaus, Professor Glastonbury has been putting together this almost complete skeleton of a giant sloth. He's missing one rib, and he's cast it in plaster. And he keeps putting it in and taking it out, putting it in and taking it out. This is one of the times when Miss Minton has a really good line. So he's talking to Miss Minton about his dilemma. Should I put in the plaster cast rib? And no one would know, right? And Miss Minton's like... You would know. You would know, Mr. Glastonbury. (laughs) And so there's talk about going on an expedition to try and find another giant sloth. And so there's this mystery, like... Might we find more bones, or what? might we find a real creature? I was in Cambridge earlier this year, and I went to their Natural History Museum. They've got a big giant sloth skeleton. It's massive. It's like the size of an elephant. Part of the ecology message, I guess, of this book, which is also very strong. Yeah. Um, Eva Ibbotson was married to a man called Alan Ibbotson, and he was a naturalist. And this is the book that she wrote in the aftermath of his death. And it's like it's picked up all these values that he had in his working life as an ecologist and a naturalist. She often has these environmentalist and leftist and anti-colonialist themes in her books, but I feel like this is where you can see the influence of her husband the most strongly. I think it's really moving, like, that this was his life's work. And then in the aftermath of his death, she said she, she felt like she couldn't write anything happy for a while, that she needed to cover some of his ground, I guess, and that's where all the beautiful nature writing comes in, right? About, like, the plants and the flowers and the Mm. monkeys and the butterflies. Now we talk about deforestation in the Amazon and native peoples being displaced and the Amazon being the lungs of the planet Earth and that we're cutting it down. It's still very relevant now. It was relevant 20 years ago when it was written, and I think it's a message that's, if anything, even more relevant now, like... Yeah, I didn't know that about her husband. So that adds a, another mm. layer, another texture to the whole book for me, really. Yeah. The depths of feeling and emotion for characters yeah. and the sense of loss that you get yeah. from Glastonbury and Miss Midler. I want to talk about like the way she plays with Britishness and Englishness in that like we've got the Carters who are still eating heavy suet puddings mm. and they're pretending that they're still living in England in the middle of the Amazon jungle. It says for the first, like, two weeks they were there, these chefs cooked them, like, spiced fish and, like, all this amazing food, and they didn't want it, and they were just like, no, 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 here's the dinner list. And they're just like, it's not not explicit, but you can feel, like, how gutted these people are of, like, we're really good cooks, and you just want us to open (laughs) tinned peaches. It's this sort of small-minded English... Mm. Attitude. It does feel like a particularly English thing, doesn't it? Because we have other nationalities in this book, like there's some Russian expats there as well, who are presented as being a bit more kind of tolerant and absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
it is very english it's absolutely colonialism right Mm. it's like the world exists for us to take and exploit there's that horrible thing where um what's what is it they call the house tafferini the house of rest the house of rest and it, it it was originally uh was it a holy building it was a long house where a medicine man had been buried That's it, and yeah, where yeah. his soul still lived. And they promised to keep it. They said to the natives, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll keep it like this. And of course, they knocked it down and built their own little piece of England on top of it. Yeah. And then she kept the name because she liked the name. the name. That's the exactly. really kind of like yeah. sinister bit is that it was called the House of Rest because it was a shrine. And she's like, oh, that's nice. That's pretty. Tafferini, that sounds, yeah, yeah. That's a, such an interesting um, distillation of how Europeans did treat native people in yeah. South America, right? Like, we did cheat them out of their land and we did knock down their holy buildings. I think that is one of the things that she's captured really well, mm. is the way, like, the disdain for the people who already live there by the British colonial people. So how how well do we think she's done then in terms of presenting colonialism presenting colonialism i think she's done really well presenting native people they feel kind of peripheral don't they um which they shouldn't so there's a bit in the beginning of my edition a letter from eva ibbotson that even says she never went to brazil right so I think as good as the nature writing is that she was able Mm. to research what kinds of animals and plants there are there I think you can also tell that there's been no real reference to like reference texts by native peoples I do think the the representation of native peoples in this book they're very flat they're very 2d they're very subservient and they're so good as to have almost no personality like there's sort of this like noble savage trope there's a lot of native people near the end of the book. They're indistinguishable from each other. Exactly, yeah. Who's who? And you, you, you're never given any names. No. You're given their maybe gender roles, and that's about it. The main native tribe that we talk about in this book is the Shanti, because Finn's mother was a Shanti woman. I looked this up. The Shanti aren't real people. I think she made them up. So I guess she's not actually misrepresenting a real people. It's still a problem. She talks a lot about the sides of Finn, that Finn has a rational British side and a superstitious Indian side. That's really racist. I think she means well, and so she tries to upend that by saying that his native superstitious side is right and that his British rational side is wrong. But it's still racist to say that Britishness is to be rational Mm. and indigeneity is to be superstitious, right? Like, that's not true. Mm. This is one of the things I'm hoping for in Emma Carroll's sequel is I think you could do a lot better on that front, on the representation of native people's front. Yeah, so this is quite an interesting thing, isn't it? That there is now a sequel of this coming out 20 years on, written by Emma Carroll. Is she your mate, Porrick? You know her. I know Emma. Yeah. Um, Did you manage to winkle any clues out of her as to what she's going to do? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to her in ages, but I am tempted to ask her something. The one thing I do want to ask her is, how does she feel about doing it? Because I know if someone came to me and mm. said, would you write a sequel to this book? I go, no, no, no. It feels like a huge job, you know. But then again, Emma's a great writer. And she's a really good historical writer, isn't she? Exactly. Yeah. I'm reading her book at the moment, um, The Week at World's End. And I love the way she hands various elements. In that regard, I think Emma could really do a great job. You know, I think she has the, 
the technical skill to do it. You know, personally me, I'd be afraid. <laughs> I'd run a mile. Should we talk a bit about what we know about it? So we know that it's set in 1946. And we have promised Maya, Finn and Miss Minton and Clovis as returning characters. Right. Yeah. So it's it's set at first at Westwood, I think. Yeah. And it's around a little girl who was a kinder transport child whose parents never came back to claim her for whatever reason. All right. And then uh, she, for reasons, goes to the Amazon. Yeah, there's a bit... <laughs> It's sort of glossed over in the in the in the press release. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's an interesting time jump to take, right? Because like, it would be tempting to go in straight after the end of Journey yeah. of the River Sea mm. because you love those characters, but their story's over. She wrapped it up really neatly. Yeah. So taking a thirty-six year jump, so everybody's going to be grown up. Maya and Finn and Clovis are going to be grown up. Miss Minton is going to be old. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's already sort of old in this, so they don't say exactly well, how is old she, she is. though? I, this is in, I've just thought this now. Is she? Because she's presented as, like, completely ageless. I think she's at least middle-aged. But she might be, like, 35. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you say maybe she's about 35, but I, I get the impression of it. She acts kind of older than her age. Well, partly it's that she doesn't have her own children, yeah. I think. And so we mm. put that spinster lens on her. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are we hoping for then? I'm hoping that Finn and Maya haven't got together. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> but I think they probably have. Oh, it, something, something in the, it says something in the press release about their descendants. And I suppose they might have had descendants with different people. But I feel like probably they got married and lived happily ever after. And if they did, I hate that for Maya. <laughs> <laughs> I have a really bad feeling. Finn is going to be even more insufferable. Yes. Yeah. I wonder if Clovis goes back to acting, maybe? What are you hoping for, Matt? I'm definitely looking forward to watching Clovis struggle mm. with his new life. Mm. I mean, I want more of the twins, definitely. Yes! I want more oh. of the twins, because the twins are such delicious baddies as kids. Yeah. You could do a really good redemption arc with them. So I really want to see what they're like as adults. And I think yes. you could do some really interesting things with like the dynamic between them. Because I get the impression like that Beatrice is like irredeemably evil. Yeah. And Gwendolyn's a follower. Yeah, Gwendolyn might have some good in her, and me like I think that'd be an interesting thing to follow as like a side story. Yeah. Would you like to plug your books for us? Yeah, absolutely. Please. Yeah, here we go. The Shadows of Brookhaven picks up a few years after the first book. It, it revolves around a thing that's happening in the in the Brookhaven house, a thing called the Configuration. This weird mystical event that happens every one hundred years. So the family are all very excited about this, but a new character arrives on the scene into the house and kind of upsets the apple cart a bit. Oh, I'm very much looking forward to reading it. It's, is that wrapping up time, then? I think so. Feels like we've come to a come to a natural conclusion. We should do a Who's It For? We always end with a Who's oh, It yes. For, don't we? we? We forgot a whole section of the podcast. You can start us off, Perig. Who is Journey to the River Sea for? The thing I love about the book is I can't pin down who it's for. I mean, I read it as a, a bedraggled middle-aged man and I enjoyed it immensely. And I think 
10-year-olds can read it and get just as much enjoyment. And 10-year-olds can probably read it now and then 20, 30 years later get something else from it. I think it's for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think I'd agree with that. It's fiction, but it feels like travel writing in such a rich mm. way. So I think like anyone who's like been to that part of the world, it would be lovely. Mm. And anyone who hasn't been able to go many places, it would be lovely. I think Eva Ibbotson usually gets recommended for girls a lot what do we think about that like it's not just for girls is it no No, definitely not i mean it's great for girls because it's got such a strong female protagonist but it's not not exclusive to girls at all uh yeah so i would say it is for fans of eva ibbotson if you've read anything else by her and you haven't read this yet you will adore it Mm. um and fans of parag kenny as well Yes. I think plenty of similarities there. <laughs> I'm flattered. Parag, thank you so much for coming on. This yes. has been so, so lovely. Thanks for yeah. asking me. This is as lovely as we Grateful. expected it to be. Oh, thank you. And our expectations were very high. All right, my expectations were the same and they were met. And exceeded. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. So you can get hold of Shadows of Rookhaven, second in the Rookhaven series uh, now, I think. Certainly by the yeah. time this goes out. Yeah. In all of the places. And that was Porig, everyone. Lovely Yay. to have him on the podcast. Do you know what we forgot to ask him? What? We forgot to do the scaryometer. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A new segment. Uh, luckily, Porig agreed to do us a scaryometer after I wrote to him and he sent us his rating. This is breaking the fourth wall of, of uh, podcasting. We edit it afterwards. So, Porig says, I would rate the book a three in the scaryometer because the only threat I felt was when a certain character went missing, but I did know there was a chance they'd be all right. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with the reasoning. I'd up it slightly. I'd go a, I'd go a four or a five. I was going to go for a three or a four, so let's average it out and go for a four. Yeah. Should we talk a bit about why? There, there's a there's a bit towards the end of the book where Maya goes missing and Miss Minton, as her governess, is absolutely beside herself with worry. Yeah. And I think Porrig's right in that, you know, particularly reading this as an adult, like, you know the conventions of stories enough... That you think probably she is going to be all right in the end. Yeah, and I think even as a kid at the age you're going to be when you're reading this, like you've probably already got enough ingrained knowledge of story that you know that it's kind of going to work out. But despite that, like I've really, really bought into Miss Minton's fear. And the book stays with it for a while. I think a lot of children's books play with that danger and then maybe leave you on a cliff edge for one chapter and then come back and everything's all right. The book stays there for a good few chapters of not knowing where Maya is. It's just written so well and written so believably that whether or not you suspect or actually know that everything's okay, it sort of doesn't matter. Like, that fear is so real. I'd probably give it a five. I'm happy to level it out at a four. But we will take into account that you wanted to go higher. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, are we ready to move on to the picture book? Yeah, let's, let's. 
Along the River by Vanina Starkov. So this is another depiction of the Amazon and particularly sort of life on the river and river boat travel and that whole culture. The people who live there. Yeah, it's um, very, very simple, but like it's absolutely minimal in terms of words. It's kind of basically like a fairly short sort of poem that sets up the river and living on the river as a metaphor for a journey for life Mm -hmm. and kind of the people you meet on the way and like having to steer your own course and find your own path. But go with the flow. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's like it's a nice bit of writing. English translation by Jane Springer. Yeah. The main thing about the book that really stands out is the pictures. Yeah, the art is incredible. It's just really bright, like people on their boats along the river, which is bright yellow. Yeah, um, which is a choice, right? All the people on the river boats have like really affirming signs. Like (laughs) it's, I mean, it's a little bit sort of live, laugh, love. It is. Kind of, do you know what I mean? (laughs) It's a bit sort of like kitsch sentiment but it's nice and like you know it's really appealing style with the art i mean it's collage basically isn't it yeah it's sort of like a combination of collage and painting i think um like there's some cut out prints as well aren't there like patterns that have clearly been cut out yeah it almost looks a little bit like hieroglyphics like all it all like by a tapestry do you know what i mean that kind of we see everything exactly from the side so yeah we see everyone's two legs and two arms and the side of their face yeah they're either front on or they're sideways yeah like they're in a play yeah 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 it does it feels like it's almost like a little shadow puppet show but um with kind of full color rather than shadows it reminded me a little bit of the art style of Patan's Pumpkin. Yeah, definitely I can see that. Yeah, it's that. So I think we talked a lot in that one about like the simplicity and like yeah. um, that accessibility. Like it feels like a drawing style that like feels like a kid could get involved with. Like obviously yeah. it's like it's really artistically sophisticated, but it's kind of got that simplicity that like I can I can imagine reading this as a kid and then going away to draw my own pictures. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like there's a bunch of boats with watermelons on them. Yeah. And some of the watermelons, you can see the skin of the outside of the watermelon. And some of them are like basically like a cross section. Like it's been yeah. sliced exactly to face out of the picture. You can yeah. just see like the melon rind around the outside and then the pink flesh and all the little black seeds. And they're all like perfectly lined up, very child's drawing like. It's very safe. It's very happy. It's about community. Mm-hmm. I like the message in the writing is that thing of kind of life's a journey find your own way through it but do that with other people and but don't try too hard i picked up themes of like there's a lot of food and a lot of music there are lots of scenes of people playing especially guitars and drums yeah and then there's a lot of scenes of people like chopping up fruit and vegetables and making smoothies in their blenders and everyone's got little peace signs yeah. There's like two main symbols in this book. There's the peace sign and the love heart. It's very peace and love, um, which is very yeah. nice. Um, I really like that most of the people represented are black. There are a mm-hmm. few white people and a few brown people. Mostly they're black people, which is right for Brazil. And we got a bit of that in journey to the river sea when maya was on her way to the carters but once she gets there the cast of characters with the exception 
of thin are really white, really European. Mm-hmm. So I like this, that it sort of like recenters, you know, like most of the people who actually live here. Um, there's lovely big like painted afros and people with their hair in locks. Did you did you clock the romance in the pictures? Uh, no, no. Uh, if you look through the pictures, so there's one guy with a beard who lives on what looks like a kitchen bow. He's got like a chopping board and a bunch of fruit and vegetables and cakes. And there is a woman who wears a head wrap and her bow is full of cactuses. There is nothing said about them in the words, but track them throughout the book. They just get closer and closer and closer. And then, like, she comes over to his boat and, like, they have a little meal together. And then the next page you see them on her boat and, like, she's sitting in his lap. It's just this little, like, background love story between them, which is really nice. And which is not referred to at all in the words. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really nice. It is, isn't it? It's like a little thing to keep track of. I didn't follow all the little stories. Um, I think their cats also fall in love. So when she's in his lap, in her boat, in his boat, two little cats having a party. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that, yeah. There's lots of, like, little mini stories like that, I think, to follow. The metaphor's quite simplistic, but I think it's, like, a really universal one. Like, I I, I do often keep coming back to, like, rivers in my own writing as well. Like, I, I really... I like rivers... Just as a thing in themselves, like geographically, but metaphorically, I do think they're really rich as well. Yeah. And the idea of a whole life lived on the river is really appealing, like, mm. just looks like a lot of fun. I'd quite like the idea of living on a riverboat if I was less of a hoarder. I think I'd, I'd have to get rid <laughs> of really a lot of... It would really force you to get rid of lots of stuff. Going all the way back to when we did, like, Dewey's Tack, like, that yeah. sense of being able to track it through and just find more and more little stories in the pictures. Like, yeah, just I like think... track any character and see what happens to them. There is a lot of that going on. So what age of child would you read this to? Dead little, isn't it? Yeah. Really little. Sort of, yeah, sit on the lap with a sort of two-year-old and just yeah. kind of enjoying enjoying the pictures. I think it's good that it's bright yellow. I think it yeah, would because like if if it was blue, it would just kind of it would change the whole tone. Yeah, and the Amazon isn't blue. Yeah. Should we wrap up? Yeah. That was episode twenty-three of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid, all of now as a kid, let us know or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchbullPod and on Instagram we are eventhetrunchbull. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even the Trunchbull. <laughs>